kicking off episode 185 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Mimosa from the Tiki Creeps. It's from their album Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. You can find them at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com. Go check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you because they gave us permission to run that song on this episode of this podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm super excited for this week's episode. Okay, I'm super excited about every week's episode, but this week's episodes are something that I've been working on for a while, something that we've been wanting to make happen. If I go back into my Facebook conversation with the guest, I've been talking with him for about a year trying to get him on the show, and really, it's all on me. I would start conversations about scheduling things, and then it just... I'd let things kind of peter off and I'd do other episodes, that sort of thing. So, Keith J. Rainville, before we even get started with your episodes here, thank you for making the time to appear on the show. Keith J. Rainville, ladies and gentlemen, is the man behind the website from Parts Unknown. From PartsUnknown.net brings you masked wrestler pop culture and vintage Mexican monster media, and they've been doing it since 1995. Keith, super cool guy, very passionate about Mexican and just being a fan. And that's one of the things that I love doing here on Monster Kid Radio is talking with people about their fandom of this type of media, of monster movies of all kinds, whether it's Mexican monster movies, Japanese horror, European horror, Hammer films, the AIP stuff from the fit. It doesn't matter. If you're a fan of classic horror, well, you're a friend of mine as far as I'm concerned. Keith, my friend, thank you for joining us here on Monster Kid Radio. Now, we're going to go over all the website stuff at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. You'll also hear how you can get a hold of us, you know, contact information, Facebook, all of that. That's at the end of the show. And to get to the end of the show, we got to get to the middle of the show, which is part one of my conversation with the man, Keith J. Rainville. Let's kick that off right after this. <laughs> How much shock can you take? It will haunt you forever. From the depths of evil comes a diabolic killer of beautiful women. The vampire's coffin. See a vampire's body stolen from its tomb. A psycho killer removes the stake so the vampire can again prey on beautiful women. It's in the vampire's coffin. And to complete a double night of horror, a monster's nightmare of terror turned loose in a fight to the death. The robot versus the Aztec mummy. They will bring you a night of terror. We dare you to see them, but don't come alone. Vampire's Coffin in an all-new double horrorama show with The Robot versus the Aztec Mummy presented in Hypnoscope. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, 
and the Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and the Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. Listen to the beat of your heart, Marianne. You hear the beat of fear within you. Fear that will rise to a shattering crescendo of terror. You have strayed into a world of evil where frightened people are held in the grip of unearthly horror. Beware of pity for the handsome prisoner in the Castle Meister. Beware of love, for in your heart is only the pulsating throb of terror. Starring Peter Cushing, as the doctor locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. Also starring Frida Jackson as Greta, who served the vampires with insane loyalty. <laughs> you needn't be afraid, she's dead. Martita Hunt, the Baroness, victim of her own son. Beautifully, Von Morlore, France's latest sex kitten, as Marianne whose beauty was her passport to the twilight world of the undead. <laughs> David Peel as the Baron, blindingly handsome, yet his kiss transformed the most beautiful girls into monsters. to welcome to Monster Kid Radio, uh, an enthusiast, a fan, and somebody who knows a heck of a lot more about Mexican horror movies than I do. I'm talking about publisher Keith J. Rainville. Keith, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. You are the man behind the website from Parts Unknown. Yes, from Parts Unknown, FPU. As uh, as the initials go. That's right. Yeah, from Parts Unknown is actually a website I became aware of a few years ago when I was doing a different podcast that focused on zombie movies, and I found out about your book Zombie Mexicano. 
just to give some backstory, From Hearts Unknown started as a magazine in the 90s before there was an internet back then, but in 92, you know, to 95, when I first kind of became an, a formal enthusiast of, of Mexican <laughs> cinema, I guess, you know, there really just wasn't the internet like we know it, certainly not, not like we know it today, and there was just really nothing out there, and there were no pictures, even if there were. So, you know, this was still, quote-unquote, the zine era, and I was a professional graphic designer and magazine editor and knew a bunch of other people who had similar skills and, you know, tangential skills, uh, photographers and artists and whatnot. So no one was covering these Mexican movies in any kind of formal or prolonged sense. A couple of guys like, you know, Damon Foster and August Ragone would do occasional articles here and there for scenes, but we did the first dedicated to Mexican horror, Mexican mass wrestler stuff, Lucha Libre and Mexican Science Fiction magazine for the English market. And really that era of the zine, and I'm not saying zine in the modern sense where it's cut together in your living room and very maker-oriented. I mean, you know, we had big print runs. We were publishers. We, you know, were selling to chain stores and, and stuff. So there was a little more of a magazine market then. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the better zines were very niche. And whether it was cars or what I did or Filipino horror or, you know, there was a lot of these super niche magazines out there. And really, I see that as the paper invention, the prehistoric invention of the Internet. It's the Cro-Magnon of the Internet (laughs) where, like, if you just wanted to talk about kung fu movies and there was no forum for it, you did a zine. And you did a magazine, you got it into like Tower Records, and oh my God, people were buying from parts unknown in Sydney, Australia, and in Tokyo, and you know, it wasn't out there in the the tens of thousands, but if I did 5,000, I had 5,000 readers, and they were global, and it, it was crazy the reach you could get back then with paper, and really, it's like the internet's... I don't want to say, I don't want to give it credit for having this awareness, but when the internet evolves into this very niche, dedicated website kind of system that's happened, uh, especially the blog explosion, you know, from five to eight years ago, where there are extremely, extremely dedicated niche things, that really comes from this paper zine era. And, Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was pretty great. I mean, you, you had to be serious about it. You were, you were investing time money and storage space in your little cruddy apartment in <laughs> whatever city you were in for this. You know, I used to have these, uh, a run of my magazine was a, the size of a phone booth. You know, it was a huge stack of boxes and you had to schlep those to the post office and schlep them to comic cons and then to horror conventions. And, and, you know, it was a lot of work. So, so if you were doing it, you were pretty serious and you were pretty dedicated and it, there was nothing better than finding somebody who was buying your stuff and who was reading it. And, you know, you didn't have Google Analytics back then. You had people across the table from you going, oh, my God, what is this? Or, oh, my God, I have this. I saw this as a kid. I never knew what it was. And, yeah, a lot of guys like me had that kind of, like, early feedback to other niche fans where you suddenly discovered, hey, I'm not alone in the world. Mm -hmm. This is a great thing. I've read a number of the back issues. Uh, Some of them are available for sale on your website. The magazine's no longer in in publication, but I've read some of the back issues and I agree. I I can see the passion and the dedication and, you know, listeners, he's absolutely right. This is not somebody put together something on a photocopier and sent it out. This 
is an honest to God magazine. I, I would recommend people get their hands on I it. Will, I will stress nothing against that. You no, know? not I mean, at all. I'm all I, I definitely had that period of my time, too. Um, mm-hmm. But to get back to the zombie book, I had this break in publishing. In 2000, I moved out to L.A. And I was on a two-issue-a-year cadence where I would do a horror convention and then San Diego Comic-Con every year. And I wanted a new issue for each of those shows, so that's why I would do one. And when I moved out here, I knew I was going to take a financial hit, so I broke my convention schedule. And I was terrified of, oh, if I break the zine schedule, if I break the cycle, I'm never going to reestablish it. And that came true. So, like, in, 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 like I hit rock bottom, and then, then, you know, as far as finances go, I moved out here for web animation in 2000. And in, like... 2001, every one of the networks that was trying to carry web animation folded, and it just, the bottom blew out of that industry, and we, you know everyone was out of a job for a while, and then 9-11 hits, and then you're like, oh boy, you know, I haven't worked in a year. And I lost the cadence of the magazine and never quite got it back, but then I went into books. I started doing books here and there, and I started doing consulting for other projects, and I hit a point where I, I, I was so busy consulting Lucha Libre projects, I had no time to write about it in the zine. And to me, it was like I was more involved in this stuff than ever before, but to the world, you're not putting out issues. So I hit a point where I was like, I haven't printed anything in years. And a friend of mine was pushing this new printing press on me called a Digital Indigo and said, you you can do books on this digital press to the tune of 50 copies. And they look incredible. And I'm like, well, you know, I'll be the judge of that. So, so I was kind of, I was kind of bored and, and wanted to take this challenge of, let's see what this press is all about. And I had had this argument at a party about the Agra Sanchez Momia movies over these zombie films that just didn't have the word zombie. Uh-huh. The zombie in Mexico in 1970 meant white zombie. It meant Haitian, glassy-eyed, religious connotation kind of zombie thing. And, you know, this guy was like a super gorehound kind of, had seen every Italian zombie movie ever. And I'm like, well, you've seen the Mexican ones too, right? Because they were doing it kind of before the Blind Dead movies almost. And we're doing it for like, no, there's no Mexicans. I'm like, oh, man. So we get into this big fight about, oh no, why are they using the word mummy if it's a zombie movie? It's like, what's the semantic difference? It's like if these had been dubbed and called like zombies from Guanajuato, you'd, you'd love this movie and you'd have a t-shirt of it, but they just weren't. So, <laughs> so that argument turned into, okay, I need to test that press. And I was writing this article for some other website and I'm like, why don't I just make this the book? And it went from like 48 to 64 pages. And then I'm like, I got to cut it off because I don't have enough money. And I've never published in this really small micro run boutique edition book model. And I was pretty intimidated by it, and I shouldn't have been. I should have done a bigger run. I should have done or a couple of different, you know, limited runs or something. But it was strictly an experiment, and the press looked great. The product was fantastic, and I was delighted and kind of blew through the the run of 250 I did in a few months without really trying. And it was like, wow, this is a whole different era now. This is like you're selling online, you're selling at shows, and you can still make a profit on this thing even if you've only done 200 books, 200 copies. And that that's a neat new world, and that's how that's kind of how that book came about. 
there was no higher calling other than that. And I love the fact that it connected with a lot of people and actually kept that argument out there that, yeah, if you're a zombie completist, there might be like seven or eight movies you've never seen because they don't have zombie in the title. And there's arguments to and from, you know, to and for these, but I think they're completely consistent with a lot of the Italian, Spanish, and other European zombie films, but don't get that recognition. So I, I love the fact that that connected with some people. Oh, sure. And I first learned about it, like I said, during a different podcast that I used to produce. I used to produce a zombie podcast, and I learned about the book through a zombie blog up in Canada called The Zed Word. And I, I read yeah. about it, and I thought, you know, I've got to get this book, so I ordered a copy for myself. And I loved it. I think you're spot on that while the word zombie doesn't appear anywhere in the film, they certainly serve as like a an offshoot of the zombie sub-genre of cinema, but they also stand alone as their own thing, which made them very fascinating to me. And mm. Like I said, I really enjoyed the book a lot, and okay. the synopsis of the different movies, and you know, I was writing down names of actors and actresses. You know, I was like, i got to look That's these cool. people up. And the artwork in there, you filled it with a number of lobby cards and stills. It's a gorgeous book. Unfortunately, it's sold out right now, but if anybody can get their hands on it. I saw one show up on eBay last week. I don't know what it went for, but they sort of are out there. And mm -hmm. I'm on another big kind of macro project for the next year, but if time allows at some point, there will be another, I don't want to say edition of that, because you know, I don't want to penalize anyone who bought that as a limited, and mm -hmm. now it's going to come out wide, but... I think I want to expand that book into something different and just have a general sort of Mexican undead book and oh. have it be a bigger thing, but have another publisher do it because I'm honestly fulfillment is the bane of my life. And I hate, sure. <laughs> I hate packaging up orders and doing, and dealing with that kind of thing. I love designing books. I love content. I love the design process and the crafting of them. Selling them, <laughs> not, not as much fun. Sure. You know? Or invoicing stores that aren't paying you, definitely not the fun aspect of it. So, right. uh, so yeah, but uh, some, something will happen with that material at some point that uh, we'll put it back out in the world because uh, it's too good. It's too good to be mm -hmm. in the obscurity it languishes in. And that's just true of Mexican horror in general. Sure. It, it, it's in the ghetto of the horror ghetto. It's this marginalized thing that, I just don't get it. I don't get the horror fan who has 30 different genre-lean naked vampire movies and every Nashy Valdemar werewolf film and has never seen anything from Mexico. I just don't get that. I don't get the, the completists out there who've never seen Mexican Frankensteins and Mexican Wolfmen. And it would drive me nuts knowing this stuff is out there and I haven't seen it. But you see way too many people just be dismissive of, oh, it's that Mexican crap. Or, or or it's that mass wrestler crap, or it's that... And it's like, well, you know, some of that crap was done by geniuses. You know, Chano Urieta is a genius director. You know, mm -hmm. he worked with Jodorowsky. He's, no one's arguing his stability. And the DVDs that Casa Negra put out at the beginning of the decade, you know, these are criterion-level DVDs of movies like The Witch's Mirror and The Brainiac and... Black Pit of Dr. M, and you, you, everyone needs to own these. These are like some of the best horror on the globe. And, and they need to stand, have have equal cult status with Japanese and Spanish and Italian, but just somehow don't. And sure. uh, that kind of baffles me and, and 
kind of drives me nuts. And uh, anything I can do to put a dent in that ambivalence that a lot of the world seems to have, I'll I'll take that shot. Do you think some of the problem is, well, the perceived problem, is that when they do show up over here, they've been Kay Gordon murrayed where there might be kind of yeah. played down a little bit and they aren't really presented in the original fashion? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. With the Kay Gordon Murray's, I have two very different unrelated thoughts on the Kay Gordon Murray stuff that I'd love okay. to get to. Is, is one, without the Kay Gordon Murray treatments, we just don't have these movies. Right. If you were a child of the 80s, if you were a teenager in the 80s like I was, the fact that the Santo, the Samsonized Santo films and the Kay Gordon Murray dubbed up movies and the Aztec Mummy movies that, you know, even Johnny Legend rescored with his music and that kind of stuff would show up on USA Network on Commander USA's Groovy Movies and showed up later on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Without those treatments, there's zero awareness of this product. So that period of schlocky dubbing and drive and exploitation is sort of the worst thing that's ever happened to these movies and the best thing that's ever happened. It's like everything I am as a fan of these movies is because I was exposed to those, but it allows them to live in that golden turkey phantom zone of punishment that people put them in. And Robot vs. the Aztec Mummy is, was a famous movie for being the worst movie ever made for a long time. That and Plan 9 are like the perennial, this is the worst movie ever made, look, look, look. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, that's a giant robot fighting a mummy and they're ripping each other apart. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> you know, it's pretty great if you're a kid. Oh, yeah. You know, they're really fun. And, you know, I'm not defending the craft and lack thereof. I'm not defending the use of stock footage and the fact that those movies are only like 50 minutes long with <laughs> with another half hour of padding from the other films in the series. Mm-hmm. I would love to see a guy do, like, take every one of those Aztec Mummy movies and make a, a super cut of one movie that's really good. And I think you could do great stuff with that. But it's like, don't punish these movies like that. And realize that, yeah, when you see Samson versus the Vampire Women, that it's pretty fun and it's schlocky and it's it's got this quality to it. It's a, it's a psychotronic experience, quote-unquote. But El Santo contra las mujeres vampiras, when you see the original, and you see it wide, and you see it restored and crisp, like it is on the Mexican DVDs from the past five years, wow, this is a like, legitimately good vampire movie, and these these women are gorgeous, and this thing is just gorgeously warm, milky black and white, and completely competent in all its execution and it's got a lot going for it. The so bad it's good quote unquote curse is it's the best exposure a movie can get and it's also the worst life sentence a movie can can get. So, I mean, what do you do? The other thing I want to bring up about the K. Gordon Murrays is that they're disappearing. They are not being preserved. They are not being transferred onto Blu-ray. They never made legitimate DVDs. They were seen as public domain until some copyright laws changed in the late 90s in Mexico or early 2000s, and suddenly you couldn't get those movies anymore and no one could produce them. So the dub packages are not being archived in Mexico. They're not being archived by any American studio. Some are on YouTube. Some are on really bad public domain DVDs that were blown out at these big box stores in the mid-2000s 
for a buck a disc, but they're not being preserved. And I think that's an important chapter of Mexican cinema that's going to be lost if we're not careful, because it's, it's, it's being lost as we speak. You know, the Little Red Riding Hood versus the Monsters cut of that movie should be preserved. It, it's just like how the Shaw Brothers English dubbing of the Kung Fu movies from the 70s, that should be preserved. That is a legitimate part of those movies' life is in that form. Yeah, it's part of the legacy. It's part of the legacy, and as long as you have the original, as long as you have the Cantonese or Mandarin originals available, give us both. Why banish one as this bad aside chapter that we'd all like to forget? Bullshit. I mean, just give us the stuff. It's it's a very similar argument to what goes on in Japanese film circles where everyone loves these katsu-produced Lone Wolf and Cub films, and it's it's a badge of honor about how legitimate a, a Japanese cinema fan you are if you're cool and you hate Shogun Assassin. Oh, Shogun Assassin is a bastardization, and it's oh, it's 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 this crappy dub, and it's horrible, and they mess up the characters, and it's got this. I'm like, no, it's actually a pretty damn good cut together of two films, which is really an 80-20 situation. It's not even a montage of two. It's really most of one, but. It's got this killer synth score that is phenomenal that I listen to in my car all the time. <laughs> its reach in 1980 cannot be understated. It's like, you know this property. You know that manga. You know those other six films because of Shogun Assassin. And you can't just dismiss that. It's, it's like This was a lot of work for the guys who put it together. And it was not like an afterthought and of a side of, oh, find something to do with these movies. Like, these guys love these movies who put it together and, and who recut that and wrote the new script. And I love the fact that it came out on Blu-ray as Shogun Assassin and pissed off all those, <laughs> <laughs> all those Japanese cinema purists. And I'm like, good, good. I'm buying, I'm buying it right now. I'm putting it on the shelf right next to the Japanese originals. There you go. But the fact that I have both is awesome. And, I can I remember the day coming home from the video store with that big vinyl VHS box and renting that thing and it was just like pick my jaw up off the floor. So don't belittle that experience and to come back to the Mexican stuff, don't belittle the fact that it was two in the morning, I came home from some party and I'm a junior in high school and USA Night Flight is showing Samson versus the Vampire Women, and I'm just like, what is this? I can't go to bed. I can't, <laughs> you know, I gotta find a blank tape. I got, like, what is this? Oh my god. Why is that guy wrestling? What is he wearing on his head? What are, who are these women? What language is this? You know, and it's like, that's, don't take that away from me. Those were great moments. Sure. Is that when you first discovered the Mexican movies? Was high school? I think it was, and I think, I'm not alone there. I think it was it was American cable in the 80s, desperate to fill hours. And the desperation to fill hours of programming was such a massive factor in so much, not even just movie fandom, in sports, in all kinds of different areas of just media culture. The fact that you now had 24 hours to fill of anything, of sports, of art, of theater, of of old movies or of music. I mean, MTV couldn't fill a day with music videos when it started. 
And there was this like, hey, if we make a music video, MTV will show it. So now a band that wouldn't have got the nod on the musical level from the radio aspect of things can now get this killer exposure on MTV just because we made a video. You know, that changed music right there. So the fact that USA and TNT later on with like the 100% weird programming and, you know, a lot of these at the time upstart cable networks had to fill overnight programming. So you did it with stuff that was cheap. And nothing's cheaper than a public domain genre film. It was a great thing, and it carried over a lot of other decades' media. It exposed a whole new batch of people to Night of the Living Dead, just, you know, that a lot of people wouldn't have seen. A lot of your AIP monster movies, and a lot of foreign cartoons, and, and Japanese cartoons, and a lot of just weird, niche stuff filled the cable dial because it was cheap. So I saw it there. When we first got cable, I was in the middle, Milltown, central Massachusetts area. And as far away from Mexico as you can almost <laughs> literally get in America, in the U.S. I mean, there was uh-huh. no reason for me to get into Mexican movies at that point. And just flipping around the cable dial with this remote, and that was such a new experience because, you know, I, I grew up in the 70s as a kid kid with four channels and, you know, some UHF, and you might get some monster movies from a UHF channel, but Cable suddenly was like this, this 65 channels, my God, I'm just hitting this remote, you know, and just floating through these channels of just weird programming. And I think we had Univision. Galavision did not exist at that point, but, you know, there was like one or two Spanish networks just on the dial. And they used to fill the dial with networks you knew you were never going to watch just to say, hey, there's 75 channels. You would pass Univision, and it seemed like there was always a Santo movie on. And I didn't know he was Santo. It was just, there's that guy with the silver wrestling mask, or the white wrestling mask, because it was black and white movie. You didn't know it was silver. But sure. like my, like I was a wrestling fan for life, and my dad was too. And we'd stop on like, there he is again. What is this? What? Is he fighting an octopus? What? Ah, I don't even know. And even if we just watched five <laughs> minutes of it on our way to something else, you know, it's like, it was just so baffling that there he was again. He was either wrestling in the ring or he was in a turtleneck with a shark skin, you know, a shark suit, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> 60s Mad Men looking jacket. Uh-huh. And he'd be karate chopping some alien. And you were just like, what? this guy again so I had this kind of like notion that there had to have been at least 15 million Santo movies sure. because there was always one on and it was always different the notion I had of Mexican wrestling came entirely from Mil Mascaras oh yeah ambassador. and in the 70s I mean I think we were living in Bangor Maine in 1979 he must have done a two week stint in Boston or in New York, Boston area, Connecticut area, for the WWWF at the time. And I remember once my dad calling me, like, Keith, Keith, you got to come see this guy. Look at this guy. And I run in from the other room, and he's he's watching wrestling, and it's from some, you know, little studio. But the guy climbing in the ring is in this gold lame and emerald green shiny cape with this hood on, 
and it's just like this, this is a superhero. This is a real superhero. Like what? How can this like, like just lightning bolt moment as a kid? And the great thing about the mass wrestlers is they have the costuming down. Oh yeah. Like take like let's just take the arbitrary year of 1978. Mm-hmm. You have these Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man TV movies at the time. You had. Spider-Man on the Electric Company, you had the Red Brown Captain America movies right there, the Doctor Strange TV movie, uh-huh. the, the Superman TV shows, the, uh-huh. the Captain Marvel serials. And like all of those, they just couldn't get the costumes good. They looked like wool, they were baggy, the guys weren't built, the guys weren't in shape. Uh, you could tell Spider-Man couldn't see where he was going. <laughs> <laughs> Why does the Captain Marvel TV show suck? All he does is, like, you know, help kids find their ponies. And then there's Mil Mascaris, who is this, like, Mr. Universe-level bodybuilder in this costume that's got, like, it's clinging to him like one of the Romitas drew it in a Marvel comic. And it's all these colors, and he's got this logo on his forehead and a cape, and he's beating some dude half to death in the ring, and you're like, how come they can do it and we can't? Like, what? Huh? You know, so anytime Mil Mascaris would be on, I would watch. And after Mil Mascaris, a guy like Jushin Liger, who was a go-na-guy design, who somehow the mask makers figured out how to do a go-na-guy mask and have the dimensional elements there. And in the 80s, Great Kabuki had the full ninja gimmick in, in mm-hmm. Texas and would blow that poisonous mist onto his hands and karate chop you with the mist on his hands and it was poisonous and <laughs> it was still in a you know, licensed pro wrestling sports ring but you know hey you, you, you can just do that and so it seemed like the wrestlers could get right the stuff that no movie and TV show maker could as far as the superhero stuff goes so I think a lot of comic book fans would love these wrestler guys because they just looked the part and it's like how, how come it's so easy for Mil Mascaris to look like a superhero and I can't have a good Doc Savage movie or I can't have a good Captain America movie and why, why do you guys get that wrong but look at him and then you find out later on that Mil Mascaris made like 20 movies and you're like oh man really damn you know so that was a big link for me was in the 90s when you have this VHS tape trading kind of boom happen, mm-hmm. where suddenly you have conventions where guys have nothing but VHS tapes on the table, and I mean like Video Search of Miami and Something Weird Video up in Seattle, they start putting these movies out on VHS, you can suddenly have these movies, and there was this amazing archaeological effort almost to like, I have one, I found one at a show. It's Santo versus the Strangler. Oh my God! You know, it's, so yeah, I'd have like six people in my house watching some weird Mexican film, or, or I'd go to someone else's house and we'd be watching like undubbed episodes of Gundam from Japan, and it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like I have no idea what's going on, but look at that robot! Oh my God, it's holding a gun. It, it's a robot with a big machine gun. I can't even, be, you know, and it's. <laughs> It, it, it was just awesome to discover this stuff and to be clueless as to what was actually going on. 
Language barriers were actually a plus sometimes because what I'm trying to interpolate in my head is so much better than what the actual script of this is, probably is, you know? And uh, sure. it was a great time. It fed your, how fervent a fan you were was how difficult it was to discover this stuff and come across it. And you hear about a movie and five years later, you finally get it. You know, there was this massive reward feeling of just, oh, look, finally, I have this. And then there was that discovery of something you never knew existed. And to a lot of people, this Mexican stuff is that. Wait, there's a Mexican werewolf? What? There's this? There's that? You know, like, yeah, yeah, look. Yeah, there is. And it's, it, it, that's, that's a great discovery is that. And I think that's true today, even with the Internet, even with YouTube. Because the Mexican stuff has been dismissed for so long and just kind of discarded or just it's just a footnote in someone's book or it's a single article in Film Facts or in whatever magazine out there, but not the whole issue. There's still a lot to discover and there's still a lot of stuff to see for the first time. And a lot of these movies are showing up on YouTube now, complete. You can go days just surfing from one to the other on YouTube and and see some pretty great stuff. So I think, you know, even in this age when you can be kind of jaded because everything is out there and you've discovered everything and everything's available and it's like, well, yeah, everything's available, but there's a bunch of stuff you've never seen. And it's, it's from Mexico. I think that's great is that there's still undiscovered country out there. I do think it's getting better because of the internet and because of podcasts and other blogs and things like that. But I think there's still a lot out there to discover. Mass wrestler or not, Mexican horror, there's a, a lot of really good stuff out there. I know oh, yeah. the B movie cast promotes it quite a bit when they have a movie on there. It's a Mexican monster movie. I'm taking notes furiously and I'm always adding new DVDs to my collection uh, because mm -hmm. it just sounds fascinating. And when I finally watch it, it is a, you mentioned the way they use the black and white, the shadows, there's a, a nice otherworldly feel to it that's still familiar because of the monstrous touchstones. Yeah. I yeah. really dig what I've seen so far. Now, I've not seen nearly as many as you have. You, you said you're an enthusiast, but I, I might even go as far as saying connoisseur because it sounds like you probably have seen a lot more than most. <laughs> I, I think that's pretty easy to say. I certainly own a lot more than most. Sure. Um, in my kitchen, where the dining room table should be, is where video shelves are, and it's, uh -oh. uh, it's all it's all Mexican stuff. And I've got the witch's mirror on in the background as we're talking, and it's nice. just Casa Negra's disc of this is so good. I'm so mad at the world that Casa Negra's out of business. They lost their shirts. They couldn't sell any of that stuff, and it's like the Herman Robles. Vampiro movies are great. They're just legitimately good. They're better than some of the Hammer vampire movies. And I know uh -oh. Thunder and Lightning just went off somewhere. Uh -oh. I mean, I produce a, I produce a Hammer podcast, so... <laughs> <laughs> I love the Hammer stuff. <laughs> but, like, not every Hammer vampire movie is is the greatest thing ever. They're not all Christopher Lee. They're not all Brides of Dracula. <laughs> like, Brides of Dracula is my favorite one. Really? Okay, you're my new best friend. There we go. Oh, my God, I love that movie. <laughs> I love... The only thing I don't like about that movie is that the windmill gig at the end uh -huh. should have killed, like, 800 vampires. It's such a great idea that no one ever did before. And yeah, it's like, I agree. It shouldn't just be for one vampire. It should be for an army of vampires. It is awesome. Yeah. But it's so... And Cushing, he gets bit, and he's just like, yeah, you know what? No. I'm not exactly. getting bit. I'm going to cauterize right now because I'm that manly. Yep. I'm just going to... You know, it's so great. And yes. It's, 
It's so great. And, you know, but, but look, I mean, some of the latter. Yeah. Some of the lesser, you know, it's like, it's like they're certainly on equal terms. And every disc that Casanegra put out is highly recommendable just for, you know, they didn't put any of the clunkers out. They put the really the best elite Mexican horror stuff out. And they would have gotten, had they gone on, if there were another 20 discs coming from that company in the following years instead of them folding, I think they would have gotten to some of the weirder, schlockier stuff. But, I mean, man, the, the Black Pit of Dr. M disc is, is a miracle, and it's the best cut of the Brainiac you could ever ask for. I know guys from Mexico who want that disc because it's a better print than they can get down there. Wow. There's so much legit good. And then even if you're not in the conversation about legitimately good or high-end art cinema or universal-level good horror or something, even if you want that so bad it's good experience, that schlocky party movie or that head-slapping weird psychotronic film, Ship of Monsters, La Nave de los Monstruos. <laughs> I defy any human being on Earth, whether you speak Spanish or not, to watch that movie and not come out the other side a better person. It's, it's, it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, two gorgeous female space rangers combing the cosmos for men because Venus is out of men. And they just collect all these goofy aliens in these great big rubber suits that are coming apart as the movie's you know, being filmed and they're... And then that skeleton bone monster called Zock, who literally fell apart and broke, so they had to write him out at the end of the movie because they couldn't keep him together. And there's, like, singing cowboys and robots falling in love with jukeboxes and uh, cyclopean <laughs> reptile monsters eating cows. And it's the best. It's such a good party movie. It's so fun. And... I'm, I'm angry more people don't know that, you know? It's like people should have tattoos of that cast on their arms, you know? And <laughs> it, it, it should be legendary. And it's not for lack of trying. I mean, Forey Ackerman used to always talk about these these Mexican movies in Famous Monsters. Mm -hmm. I think the first time I ever saw anything from, from Ship of Monsters, it was in an issue, a reprint issue of Famous Monsters. And there was just Tagual, the brain monster, who's a knockoff of the saucer men. And I think that, that might have been what they were talking about, was that the, here's your non-union Mexican equivalent of of the saucer men. And, sure. uh, like, that movie's the bomb. Like, you have to see that movie. And UCLA subtitled it a couple years ago. So you can see that film with subtitles now. Not I that you need them. Not that you need that. them. Yeah, huh. it's on... I think the subtitled cut is on YouTube. There's certainly enough bootleg DVDs of it around that you can find it. And it's almost not as good with the subtitles because it's so batshit crazy you don't want to know what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's so weird that once you know what they're saying, it's like, oh, well, that actually kind of makes sense. Wait a minute, hold on. I don't like this as much. But, yeah, I mean, Ship of Monsters is great. Brainiac is fantastic. This, this flavors for everybody in, in Mexican horror. Night of the Bloody Apes. I mean, that's just a straight-up gore thing. It's mm -hmm. straight-up gorehounds. It, that's kind of like the one movie a lot of gorehounds own from Mexico is Night of the Bloody Apes because it's got all those surgery cut-ins and 
unnecessary blood and gore and stuff. So it's like, yeah, there is something for everybody in the South of the Border offerings. A is for Aaron, it's the writer's name. B is for blog, it's what he maintains. C is for hey, cut to the chase already. So let's skip to the Z word. It's a blog about zombies. The Z word zombie blog, a blog about all things zombie. Updated weekly with news, reviews, and contests to win sweet zombie swag. That's the Z word zombie blog www.zedwordblog.blogspot.com or tinyurl.com backslash zedword. That's not possible. I mean, they showed zombies taking over the world. Samson and the Vampire Women. Deep in the bowels of the earth live the most savage and vicious of all women. They capture, they drain the blood from human beings to make themselves beautiful in Samson and the Vampire Women. These two blue marks close together on the victim's neck are what have me puzzled, Inspector. Besides that, we didn't find one drop of blood in the corpse. Why, you could swear that a vampire murdered the girl. Hey, now that I think about it, I'll bet those monsters were vampires, Doc. See mighty Samson set fire to the vampire's cave in... Samson and the Vampire Women. Keith and I continued to talk about all things Mexican horror, and we do talk a little bit more about the luchador horror movies, the hero lucha films of Santo, Blue Demon, and so on. That's going to come in the second part of our chat, which is coming out here in a couple of days. So stay tuned to MonsterKidRadio.net or MonsterKidRadio on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Stay tuned. Keith will be back here in a couple of days. Between now and then, if you want to keep the Monster Kid Radio flavor going, head over to MonsterKidRadio.net. This is where you're going to find everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes. We have our contact information, like our email address, which is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line, which is at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. We also have links to our Facebook group where you can get involved with conversations with Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes and participate in the current poll on Monster Kid Radio. I'll go ahead and tell you what it is. If you're a Facebook user and you're not part of the group, join the group, get involved with the poll that I put up over the weekend. The classic monster movies like pre-1968 are filled with heroes who stand against the monsters, vampires, aliens, etc. that threaten humanity. Well, in this poll, I'm asking you to pick some of your favorite monster Hunters. Now, Facebook lets you pick more than a couple, but I'm just asking you to pick two out of the list that's been created so far. Now, if you have a monster hunter from pre-1968 monster films and you don't see him on the poll list, go ahead and add them and place your vote in the poll. I don't think it's anybody's surprise that Van Helsing, played by Peter Cushing in the Hammer films, is in the lead. But as of this recording... Santos in there as well. So go check that out if you're a Facebook user and you want to get involved in the group. There's other conversations happening there as well. And you know, while you're at Facebook, if you haven't already liked the Facebook page at facebook.com slash monster kid radio, well, we'd appreciate your support there as well. 
Speaking of your support, something that you can do to help Monster Kid Radio out is vote for us in the Rondo Awards. Go over to RondoAward.com and learn everything that there is to know about the Rondo Awards. Go back a couple of weeks at MonsterKidRadio.net and you'll find a list of every nominee that's appeared on Monster Kid Radio in the past. Monster Kid Radio represents in the ballot for this year's Rondo Awards. And as of this episode, we've got another one. Keith Rainville was the designer of the book Outer Limits at 50, which is up for a Rondo Award in the category of Best Book of 2014. So there you go. Now, you don't have to vote in every category at the Rondo Awards. Vote in the ones that you know something about, support your favorites, and create a shopping list for DVDs and books and magazines that you may have missed last year, because that's ultimately what this ballot becomes for me, much to my wallet's chagrin. I follow the Rondo Awards every year, and it's exciting to see some new names and faces on the ballot, like Randy Bowser's Karloff, the one-person play in Best Fan Event, which you guys and gals heard me cover it here on Monster Kid Radio. It was amazing and definitely worthy of being on the ballot. And if you want to see a video clip or two from the performance, head over to karlofftheplay.com. Go to the gallery section, and you can find performance video clips to see a few minutes from the performance. It's amazing. Trust me. The HP Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon are there for best convention. MKR is there for best podcast in the multimedia category. Lots of great stuff on here. So everybody who's voted in the Rondos, thank you. And if you haven't voted yet, send your ballot to Taraco at AOL.com and let them know that you heard about the Rondos on Monster Kid Radio. I want to look ahead to what's coming up on Monster Kid Radio in the near future, and then we're going to get out of here. And I just want to tease you a little bit. Just a tease. You know how I've been talking about how we're redoing the Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and support us, help us meet some of our operating costs, that sort of thing? Well, one of the rewards in the old Patreon reward structure for Monster Kid Radio was getting yourself on a monthly newsletter, an email list for Monster Kid Radio. Well, I've decided I'm going to open that up to everybody. As I restructure the rewards, I figure that's something that I would really like to do for everyone. So stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net to find out how you can join the Monster Kid Radio exclusive. Okay. I don't know if it's exclusive, but the Monster Kid Radio official email newsletter list. It'll be a monthly thing with information that you don't get on Monster Kid Radio about what we're doing here at Monster Kid Radio, as well as Monster Rally Media. I'm just going to leave that hanging there. Again, like I said, it's, it's a tease. Of course, before that, you're going to get part two of our conversation with Keith J. Rainville about Mexican horror movies, Mexican monster movies. I think in that part of the conversation, I inadvertently mentioned who my favorite Lucha hero is. And Keith made a Batman comparison to one of the Lucha heroes. And I, I really agree with him, even though Batman's one of my least favorite superheroes. Sorry, Bat fans. But you're just going to have to come back for part two of our conversation with Keith to know just what in the hell I'm talking about. Thank you, Keith, for joining Monster Kid Radio this week, and thank you, Monster Kids, for listening to Monster Kid Radio, and thanks to the Tiki Creeps for letting us play their song, Mimosa, here on the show. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Mimosa by the Tiki Creeps. It belongs to them. It's on their album, Invaders from Beyond the Sound of Surf. You can find them at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. Let them know that you heard them on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days. (laughs) 